Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin Bloomberg Surveillance with the President's State of the Union Address, where Donald Trump sought to connect his presidency to the nation's prosperity. The state of our union is strong because our people are strong. This, in fact, is our new American moment. There has never been a better time to start living the American dream. America has also finally turned the page on decades of unfair trade deals that sacrificed our prosperity and shipped away our companies, our jobs, and our wealth. Under the current broken system, a single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Under our plan, we focus on the immediate family by limiting sponsorships to spouses and minor children. I am extending an open hand to work with members of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to protect our citizens of every background, color, religion, and creed. That was the President of the United States, Donald Trump, in his first State of the Union address. And I get to say good morning to Tom Keane for what has been like, what, Tom? Over a week, two weeks since you and I have been together? Yeah, we missed in Heathrow by 20 minutes. We, we actually did. You were going the other way. That's right. That was an interesting... Uh, so I, I really like that string of highlights from the speech. We can talk later about uh, the one one paragraph that alluded to maybe the Department of Justice and the uproar over Mr. Mueller. But away from that, the clear consensus, John, I got from experts this morning was there was very little policy within the speech that they've... I, I don't want to say they've run out of ideas... But usually in a modern State of the Union speech, there's idea one, idea two, idea three. I didn't hear that last night. There were themes without policy specifics. You can pick up on trade. He talked about the theft of intellectual property. No follow-up on the policy specifics. A lot of talk about infrastructure over the last couple of weeks, Tom. We heard that again. This idea of we can do something. In fact, Talu Olaranipa of Bloomberg did this great highlight reel of, of the amount of times they mentioned we more than 100 times the president mentioned we just 30 times he mentioned i can we can that get things done no i, th- I think it's very stylistic and, and all that has become a, a a moment for us but but there it is joining us this morning martin feldstein the baker professor at harvard who has heard too many State of the Unions. Were you in the room for any of the Reagan State of the Unions? Uh, were you one of the people down there? Yes, I was. <clears throat> you were not a designated survivor? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I got Although to you be... are the designated survivor. Well, I have survived. I have survived. Uh, I don't think a laundry list of specific proposals is the right thing for the State okay. of the Union. Okay, then what do you want to hear? You've got a large, large audience. They don't want technical details. So I think, and I think it's wrong to say that there's no new policies in this. It's just that the president announced his new policies uh, in Davos. So the uh, we'll go back to to well. the <coughs> we'll go back to the um, uh, TPP. Yeah. Um, 
that's a big change. And that was a that was a real item in Davos. As it well. was. Yeah. Uh, we will uh, open a path to citizenship for uh, uh, the dreamers, for the kids born in the United, brought into the United States as uh, young children. That's a major change. So. Uh, I don't understand why there's a sense right. that there's no specifics in this talk. So where were the specifics on trade in the State of the Union there were last no, night? There were no specifics on uh, on trade. And, uh, but again, the awkward problem is what do we do about uh, so-called voluntary transfers of technology where American companies are told that if they want to do business in China, they have to transfer their technology. <laughs> and they say, well, 1.3 billion people in China, I've got to be there. So if they want to know the secret formula for how we make donuts, we'll give it to them. Well, Professor, voluntary, of course, um, is an interesting word that we can debate because um, for some companies here in the United States, they would say there's nothing voluntarily about it. They want to be in that market. And isn't this the president's ultimate problem with countries like China, that the entrance to get into this market is very, very small? And before you go through that entrance, you have to give up some of what no, you've that's got. That's exactly right. So, But again, the public doesn't want to know the, the strategy that the administration will use to try to get the Chinese to back off that so-called voluntary transfer of technology. Uh, the uh, President Obama met with President Xi to talk about uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, use of, of cyberspace stealing of American technology, and that got the Chinese to cut back <clears throat> on that. So we're going to yeah. have to have a similar thing to deal with this not really uh, truly voluntary transfer. If you're just joining us, Martin Feldstein with us for a, a nice amount of time this morning. Thrilled that he could be with us. Paul Krugman, um, always op-edding, uh, talks about Trump infrastructure, which I think is a very fair idea and that every president has their own view of how you do infrastructure. You've seen infrastructure occur. You certainly have a vintage to remember Eisenhower and the interstate highway system. How do we actually do infrastructure in America so we can have airports and roads like John Farrell has at Heathrow and in scenic Coventry? Well, remember Heathrow, the British airport, is not a government airport. It's a private airport. It's a private airport. So that's one part. Do we need to do the, more Heathrow? We more certainly do yeah. more privatization of infrastructure. But I think that when President Obama said we have shovel-ready projects uh, to stimulate the economy, there weren't any shovel-ready projects. So what we need now is a an inventory, a a, uh, a book of of. Uh, designs right. of specifications so that when the economy turns down, we can move. I'll, I'll take your point, but are there so many rusty bridges that we can't wait for the economy to turn down? Well, I don't think... And the, are we really going to supercharge the economy with bridge building? Uh, it'll help when the economy turns down. Why and, not now? The, Why not now? Well, the economy is quite strong now. I think it's going to be hard to persuade the Congress to to um, uh, right. add to the deficit in order to do a substantial right. infrastructure. John, but I how think do they if do... the economy is weak, there will be a willingness to move forward. How do they do this in England, merry old England, John? Well, there's talk of infrastructure bonds, uh, uh, funding 
big projects like high speed rail in the United Kingdom. But there's a big debate, Tom, as to whether actually these big, big spending items actually need doing at all in a place like the United Kingdom. It's a very different debate to the United States where there is big bipartisan support for an infrastructure project. My question, Professor, is just how it's going to get paid for. The Treasury are going to have a refunding announcement a little bit later today. Typical every three months expected, but this one more interesting because we want to know how these tax cuts are going to be spent for, where they're going to issue along the curve. Now, if you plug infrastructure into the Treasury market as well, we're going to see a big boom in debt, aren't we? We're going to see a boom in debt, and my hope is it'll come when it's needed for macroeconomic reasons. When the economy turns down and the Fed says, well, there's not much we can do because our interest rates are still 2 or 3%. I, I mean, I mean, John. I know you've had a hangover on Platform Three in Coventry before, but if you get on Platform Three in Coventry, you can go to Edinburgh in four hours fifty nine minutes. You can go on a to train, and they're like on time. Aren't London, they? London Euston in about sixty minutes time, and that's a high speed rail line itself. Why can't it's, we do what he takes for granted in England, Professor? So we in can, America, we can do it. There's no question that we can do it. But I think there's going to be a reluctance to do it. Of course, again, a lot of the British rail has been privatized. Yeah. So we're the, okay. the solution for all these things is not more government activities, but I think we will need to get the government into this okay. when the economy is weak. Martin Feldstein with us at Harvard University and John Farrell from Platform 3 uh, in Coventry this morning. Jared Seiberg is with Cowan. They do great, great research, all sorts of uh, areas. Kaivan Rumor, of course, legendary in airlines. Jared Seiberg looks at a lot of things. We could do the State of the Union thing, but I think we've done it, John, like eight times this morning. So, Jared, I, I, I want to go to cyber currencies. And what I learned in Davos is government people are waiting, 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 with one exception, and that is ICOs. Jarrett Seiberg, what is an ICO, and does Washington have their attention on ICOs? Yeah, sure. So, great question. Um, ICOs are essentially a backdoor way to do an <laughs> IPO, a way to raise money from investors. And, uh, you know, Washington is not opposed to the plumbing of an ICO, of, of you know, creating a digital coin instead of a share of stock. What they don't like is doing ICOs that are not registered with the SEC, where you don't get all the protections. Are we going to get to a point where that's the toggle switch to whichever way we're going in crypto this, crypto that? Is that going to be the, the, the key thing? So I really think you need to separate uh, it out, ICOs versus, you know, Bitcoin and other digital currencies. And I think the ICO ICO approach is something that's going to survive and something that will be useful. But you're not going to be able to, you know, one one of the things we always argue is that if you build a better mousetrap, but it's all premised on getting around consumer protections and other you know, anti-money laundering rules, that's not viable. And, you know, ICOs that are designed to do that, that's not going to survive. 
you know, I, I, I look at ICOs and what happened in Korea, what happened in China. That was certainly, Jared, a huge issue, a point of discussion, I should say, in Davos. Where is Secretary Mnuchin on this and where is Washington on this? Or is it just something removed in the, in the, in the distance? No, actually, I think this is moving very quickly from the back of the oh, burner to the front of the burner. And, yeah, and we saw Mnuchin yesterday, uh, you know, his testimony before Senate banking, he was asked about it, and he basically said, you know, our money laundering rules have to apply, our Bank Secrecy Act rules have to apply, and we expect other countries to apply their money laundering rules to this. And that's a much heavier regulated product. Uh, than what's existed. Jared, before we even get on to cyber currencies, I'm already confused about the Treasury Secretary's current <laughs> stance on the actual currency of the United States of America. <laughs> what is your well, read you on the comments of the last of, uh, of the Wall last Street week? <laughs> what's your read? Uh, I think that he is very carefully trying to walk back. Um, you know, some of the comments that, that got so much attention and trying to go back to a more neutral stance. And, uh, you know, I think he was asked this yesterday as well, and I thought he did a pretty effective tap dance uh, to say, oh, I was misunderstood, you know, was out of context. I mean, all the stuff that you typically hear um, when somebody's tr- realized that they may have stepped a little too far out of bounds. The reaction of the rest of the world, do you think that's what pushed him to take a step back, Jared, or did this come from within this administration? Uh, Well, I'm not sure that's an either-or answer. I think it's uh, both. I think that uh, he he likely realized the gravity of the quotes that were were pulled out of that conversation, and I'm sure uh, there was pushback from... You know, Gary Cohn and and others within the administration uh, saying you don't want to rattle these markets. Uh, Jared, maybe outside your purview, but we're going to go to it anyways. Infrastructure. Um, I've had three conversations on infrastructure and the summary of all of them, all different. But the summary is simple. Nothing's going to happen. Can you explain to our audience why Washington cannot take a leadership position on infrastructure? I would just like them to fill the potholes on the road outside of my house. So, I, I mean, you know, I, you know, it, it, it's um, it's a question of money. You know, you know, the county claims they don't have the money, uh, the state doesn't have the money, and now the feds are basically saying, you know, where are we going to get this 1.5 trillion dollars from? And you know, to, to kind of circle back to where we started, you know, with State of the Union a little bit, uh, there was no talk of deficits, of cutting the debt, uh, you know, any any of that. And so, you know, you have Republicans who are reluctant to spend another $1.5 trillion. You have a president who's not really looking at entitlement reforms or other things that maybe could offset that. And so we get stalemate. Jerry Sieber, Cowan Washington Research Group policy analyst, joining us on the situation in the nation's capital. Yeah. Is stalemate also a consequence of the midterms at the end of this year, Jarrett? Uh, well, sure. I mean, although we're not quite at that point yet where Washington still can't get yeah. stuff done. Um, so if if somebody had a more limited infrastructure plan, that uh, could be paid for. I still think you could get uh, bipartisan support for it. 
Um, you know, the problem is that this White House does not put forward detailed right. plans. And <clears throat> so nothing happens. Jared, thank you so much. Jared Seberg with some of what we've heard from any number of guests today. Nothing happens. He's a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. That would be President Obama. Austin Goolsby uh, joins us now from the Booth School of Chicago. Austin, you've spent a few years looking at public policy, any number of, of smart papers on it, the consumer gains from direct broadcast satellites. That was a barn burn. I read every word of that. Evidence on learning <laughs> and network externalities. Say what you on infrastructure. You're in Chicago. You know the value of the interstate highway system growing up in Whittier, California. How do we jumpstart infrastructure after we heard Trump infrastructure last night? Well, uh, Tom, thanks for having me back, by the way. Uh, I was a little disappointed by the – I like the tone of a a lot of what uh, President Trump said in the State of Union last night. It seemed like he was trying to – take a bipartisan note, but I was kind of disappointed on the infrastructure part because he didn't seem to have much of a plan. His plan was, I call on you, Congress, to come up with a plan. Um, He said $1.5 trillion. What we're going to have to see now is where's the money? I mean, that's always the problem when it comes to the infrastructure is we got to wrap our heads around uh, it does cost money to build this stuff, and this stuff is productive. Yeah, but, it helps economic growth. Austin, so, we didn't have that problem with tax reform slash tax cuts. When we yeah, said, where's the money with tax cuts? Everybody said, everybody voting for it said, you know, a trillionaire, a trillionaire who's counting. I mean, wh- I why agree. are we having the same discussion about infrastructure when without question other than roads to nowhere, it benefits all? Look, I, I 100% agree. And and that's what I was saying during the the tax reform slash tax bill debate is this a big number you know arguably one and a half trillion with a bunch of accounting gimmicks that if you don't count the accounting gimmicks that might cost three trillion or more imagine how much infrastructure you could buy for three trillion dollars um, I I don't see how you know cutting the estate tax for for people making more than twenty million, who who have estates of more than twenty million dollars, that that raises yeah. our productivity or our growth more than it would fixing our airports, building out our highways, fixing our ports. I mean, this is this should be more of a priority than it seems to be, and I don't quite understand why. Austin, Professor Jonathan here. Something I don't quite understand is what's happened to a massive group of individuals that I heard so much from over several years where interest rates were at record lows, all-time lows in the United States and across Europe, where these individuals would say, there's the opportunity, go out there and borrow (laughs) and do something with that cash. And now I don't hear that as much anymore. In fact, I hear people complaining. I hear people fear-mongering about the budget deficit, about what will happen with the debt load. Those people were calling for this several years ago. So what happened? Well, you know, you've, you've hit on the new reality of American politics, which is 
the hypocrisy doesn't make any difference anymore. It used to be if you said something today that was the exact opposite of what you said 18 months ago, you at least had, you know, Tim Russert would kind of put that in your face. You at least had to squirm a little, if not come up with an explanation of why you thought it was different, for, you know, now from then. Now, yeah. I will say the Republicans have done that, and now the Democrats also are piling on in that. I think the problem is the following. When it was President Obama saying, let's borrow money to build out infrastructure because interest rates are historically epically low, now would be the time to do it. The Republicans were not going to allow him to borrow to do that. And now that it's the Republicans in control, the Democrats are not going to allow the reverse. A, Half the Republican Party wouldn't be for that, and so they would need support of the Democrats. And the Democrats say, "Wait a minute, you know, you you don't want to do it the way we that we've historically done it. You, you know, you you want well, to try to turn it over to the private sector." You know, um, so I think that's where they are. Austin, I don't know if you've done it or Steve Levitt of Freakonomics has done it, but. The gas tax is always a third rail, particularly across all of rural America. Are we just really back to, you know, where somebody says in the Oval Office, Mr. Hassett or others, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but you can't get a gas tax through because it's a third rail in Kansas. Is that where we really are? I don't know. You know, you saw uh, Senator Cornyn from Texas, which uh, of all states you'd think Texas would be, you know, among the most anti-gas tax, uh, talk about the gas tax, you know, not in a positive way, but not to completely rule it out. Uh, right. But my intuition is is what you say. The Congress is not going to be able okay. to agree cross-party yeah. lines on, on that. Constant goes with us, a former uh, chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. I know you're not a, a, a big fitness guy, but, you know, there is a fitness tracking app called what Strava. <laughs> He's not a big fitness guy. He says, I can't imagine him wearing a Fitbit. Him. No, no, no. But there is a I've fitness tracking. Gym. Please. There's a, this, is, this is connected to what we're going to talk about. There's a fitness tracking app called Strava, and it has about a billion activities and three trillion points of latitude and so on. Anyway... A 20-year-old Australian university student, Nathan Rooser, he noticed that the map showed locations and running routines of U.S. military personnel yeah. all over right. the world. That kind of technology yeah. well, gets out there, and it's very hard to put it back in the bottle. Yeah. And our next guest, uh, Bhaskar Charvar, uh, I'm sorry. Chakravati. Chakravati. Derek, I hope I did okay, Professor. Thank you, Professor. Absolutely. You're going to disabuse me of my bad pronunciation. You are the Senior Associate Dean, International Business and Finance at Tufts University. I'm sure that you saw this news report, and this plays into some research that you've recently done. You've heard about this, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we seem to be getting news reports almost on a daily basis uh, of uh, uh, user data uh, being compromised in one form or the other. So uh, it's, it's some point it gets you practically need an app to keep track of all these apps that are uh, uh, kind of uh, opening us up to all kinds of vulnerabilities. Tell us about digital trust and what you discovered. 
Well, I think uh, as, as we sort of look at where we are in our state of uh, relation, uh, the relationship with the digital uh, economy, uh, our dependence has grown, uh, you know, grown to addictive levels. Uh, our uh, sense of uh, distrust has also grown, and certainly 2017 was in many ways uh, a turning point. And uh, essentially, there are three things that I believe we are uh, not uniformly, but uh, uh, around the world, we're concerned about. We're concerned about privacy. We're concerned about security, and we're concerned about reliability. And okay. the extent to which these concerns are high or low varies depending on where you are in the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, largely speaking, we find that in the developed world, uh, we are much more concerned than in emerging markets where people are still new right. to this technology and they're excited about it. Okay, I, I, I want to ask a couple of basic questions, and these aren't fancy McKinsey questions or anything like that. <laughs> are our computers at home, our iPads at home, our cell phones wherever, are they quote-unquote safe? Because that's where the ultimate distrust comes. Uh, well, quote-unquote is uh, is the operative term here. So they're safe as in, uh, you know, um, if somebody were to really put their mind against uh, getting into your device and uh, and peer uh, into your day- day-to-day lives, uh, they could potentially do that. Uh, but you're uh, one among, uh, uh, you know, uh, three billion people uh, who uh, are on the Internet. So, you know, if I'm going to waste my time trying to get into your system, I probably would going to you know somebody you know, not that you're not important but you know right, there right, are right. many others Pimp so Fox. i think they in reality in yeah in reality not you know uh, it's it's more or less yeah, but, safe. but, but right. if somebody could want want to get in right. they could do it i'm like everybody else pim you got the fancy imac at home and you bring it home and you unwrap it and you throw the perfect box out and you've got that lens looking at you on the imac and you're going Who's on the other side of that uh-huh. lens? I well, mean, and with the pre- with the pervasiveness of Alexa and these interactive, I don't have those. You will. Someone will. I mean, whether it's Alexa, whether it's Sonos, whether it is some oh, speaker you. that. Well, I mean, Apple is also working on this. And Professor uh, Chuck. Ravorti, I'm wondering if you could speak about how this is going to affect business because Facebook has p- come under a lot of criticism because it doesn't necessarily police what goes on its site. Yeah, so Facebook, of course, has been uh, almost the poster child uh, for, uh, you know, our uh, um, concern, uh, and also a poster child for our total dependence on the digital system. You know, two billion people check their Facebook posts every, uh, you know, every month. Um, I, I think uh, Facebook has uh, turned the page on 2018, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg came out the gate uh, in the new year kind of saying, okay, this is the year when we fix everything. And essentially what he has done is he has uh, pushed uh, uh, the buck over to the users. And he said, uh, I'm going to deprioritize third-party publishers and make our uh, interactions on Facebook more meaningful by prioritizing personal posts, and I'm going to ask users to rate uh, media in terms of their trustworthiness. And I think that is just, uh, uh, you know, not taking responsibility. You know, Facebook needs to come to the realization that they're no longer a town square. They are the me- major source of news and information, and uh, they need to own up uh, to the content okay. that's on their side. So what is your prescription for Mr. Zuckerberg uh, to do? They're fighting this tooth and nail, and they're managing the message, which they've always been good at. What does Bhaskar Chakravarti say they should do? 
Yeah, I think uh, there are three things they should do. One is recognize that they are uh, a major news source. Uh, about 45% of Americans get their news from Facebook. Uh, so they need to uh, uh, be able to vet the content that's on it, and if they can't vet it, at least put uh, a, a note against it. And uh, uh, they can use human intelligence and artificial intelligence to do that. Uh, we hear every day about how smart everything is getting, so why can't Facebook get smart enough in terms of its algorithms to sort through all the content that's on it. That's thing number one. Thing number two is some of the biggest risks that uh, we face in terms of what's posted on Facebook is not here in the United States, but in the developing world where Facebook is growing uh, uh, explosively. So countries like Myanmar, where uh, ethnic cleansing, a lot of that happened on the backs of rumors spread on Facebook. So Facebook needs to get on the ground and understand the local context of these uh, societies that it has spread so fast and where people, you know, for them, Facebook is the internet. And thing number three is they need to get off their total dependence on advertising revenue. They need to find other ways in which they can make money. So companies like Google, companies like Amazon, companies like Netflix have figured it out. Why yeah. can't Facebook do that? Bhaskar Chakrabarty with us with Tufts as we look at uh, distrust on the internet. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.